This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Iowa has seen a dramatic, a shocking spike in overdose deaths, 470 overdose deaths in the state just in the year 2021. That's a 75% increase from 2019, according to the Attorney General. Iowa has seen a 120% rise in overdose deaths for people younger than 25 since 2019. That's according to the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. And when we look nationwide, fentanyl, we've heard a lot about fentanyl. Fentanyl was behind over 100,000 deaths in the U.S. in 2021. Later in the hour, I'll be joined by IPR's Katerina Sestarek to discuss proposals by our lawmakers to address this crisis, including boosting sentences for fentanyl-related crimes and making an overdose reversal medication more widely available. What can Iowa lawmakers do to tackle the overdose epidemic? That is the main question for this hour. And listeners, do you have a personal connection to a person with a substance use disorder? Have you lost a friend or a family member to an overdose? What policies do you believe should be implemented? You can join our conversation later in the hour, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Email us anonymously if you'd like to, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. John Schulte is a resident of Des Moines. He lost his daughter to an overdose in 2019. I spoke with him earlier today. John Schulte, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ben. John, you, your wife, your three sons lost your daughter, Lily, in 2019. Uh, She had, I understand, just turned 20. Very sorry. And thank you so much for coming on. As we connect these alarming statistics I just named with real people, with sons, daughters, mothers, fathers like you, so that we can raise awareness. I just want to say from the outset, thank you so much uh, for sharing such a painful family tragedy. Can you start off and tell us how and when your daughter developed a substance use disorder? Sure, Ben. I guess when her friend group started to change right after eighth grade, she attended Gateway Middle School here in Des Moines, which was a school that's small classroom size, and it's uh, it's an IB program. It was at Des Moines Central Campus, and then she met a lot of new friends there. And once her friend group changed going into high school, you know, and her personality was changing, his parents were keeping a close eye on her and were doing the things that parents do. But one thing that we noticed was that she could no longer really get ready for things on time and just showing up for things was really difficult for her. And we didn't understand it because up until that point, she was always very outgoing, involved in a lot of activities. But then it got to the point where we couldn't get her to get out of the car to go to school. She was a little overwhelmed by the size of the new school, the hallway noise, just everything going on around her. And what we didn't know and we didn't have any background with was that she was probably suffering from some pretty severe depression, anxiety, and maybe even an undiagnosed bipolar disorder at some at some point. You know, that was the battle right out of the gate for her when she was a young lady, maybe just kind of turning 14, 15 years old. 
How did you become aware of her drug use or when did that enter the picture? Shortly after, you know, change change of friends, you know, hanging out with new people. Lily was a really good big sister and, you know, a good pet owner and a good athlete and a good scholar and an artist. And so we noticed because she didn't want to have her drugs around her family. So Lily was unique. She didn't come home and, you know, we didn't look at her eyes or check her purse or she had this way of just disappearing for four or five days at a time. And that just, you know, we were just panic stricken as parents, if you can imagine. So she had never found an antidepressant or stuck with it long enough to find one that worked or stuck with the therapist long enough to find something that would work for her. And I think she found some relief going in, starting off with, you know, perhaps occasional household painkiller found it somewhere, you know, someone had a pill and someone had a Xanax. And then that turns into, you want to try meth? And I think she found her drug of choice pretty early on. And then that was a mixture of methamphetamine and heroin. Oh, how did you try to help you and your wife? Well, the only reason I even knew about her after why she, what kind of drugs she liked is because she had a lot of moments of sobriety where she would tell us what was going on. So immediately, you know, she would pull, she would disappear for a few days at a time and we would just track her down. We had to learn a lot about missing person reports and what the actual availability and what technology we had at our disposal to try to ping phones and Fortunately, we had to get the Iowa Sheriff's Department involved pretty early on. They were helpful. Lily spent a lot of time in the back of sheriff's cars going from treatment center to treatment center. But as a teenager in Iowa, there wasn't a lot of options, and we exhausted them all. We would start with maybe a civil committal. She started at Mercy Hospital. She started the Sands Unit at Broadlawns. She earned her high school degree while in a treatment center in Council Bluffs, Iowa, PMIC. She was earning her high school degree. At the same time, PMIC was closing due to lack of funding. And uh, it was a great program, small program. She benefited from it. And there was long periods of sobriety in there. So we could talk to her about well, what she used to do or where she used to go. And so she opened up to us a lot of, to a lot of things. But unfortunately, those things would also then turn into a relapse, and she would then be on the run again. John, what can you tell us about the circumstances that ended her life in 2019? She had just spent nine months at a Bridges program in West Des Moines, Iowa, working a job, working a program, going to meetings, following 12 steps, trying to get past the first step, and things would happen. You know, she had a roommate, she had a little setback with a boyfriend would get out of treatment and recontact her. And Lillian first overdosed in June of 2019. We found out about it after the fact. She was revived with uh, Narcan and taken to the hospital and then released a few hours later. So that's when we kind of knew. We knew before that this the rules of the whole drug addiction had changed once fentanyl made it to the scene in 2016, 2017 is when it first kind of got on our radar where it's like, okay, this is life and death now. And so it wasn't like experimenting with drugs in the 70s or 80s. It was do a drug and potentially die immediately. And so she had her first overdose, like I said, in June of 2019. Are there, are there policies, things that might have saved her life looking back? 
that uh, we could put out there as perhaps saving future lives of those with um, uh, drug use disorder? I think that there's some policies that she had been through a lot of treatment centers, and it seemed like every time she'd join one, they would close up shortly afterwards. So obviously funding and more attention to addiction treatment would be nice. And But, you know, we looked at all of our available resources, but what it came down to when uh, Lily finally did overdose was they didn't have any Narcan. She passed away in August of 2019. The person that she had been doing drugs with just drove her to the hospital and dropped her off at Mercy West in West Des Moines and drove away. And they resuscitated her to the point where they got a heartbeat, but she was basically gone at that point. That was on August 3rd. This man did return to the scene later to check on her, to bring her her belongings. And I just remember him saying to my wife and I that they were out of Narcan, and he said it as offhandedly as they were out of eggs. Once she got to the hospital, I'm sure she took probably lots and lots of lots of Narcan. Yeah. By that and time, it was it was too late. It was too late, yeah. Yeah. What is your message for our lawmakers as they debate the best way forward? You know, I think it just has to be a message of uh, hope and openness and forgiveness because I made a decision right there in that hospital parking lot to forgive this man who dropped off my basically dead daughter. And that's not an easy decision to make. And so I don't want to hold any ill feelings towards drug addicts because they're somebody's son, they're somebody's daughter. And I don't want to have any ill feelings towards drug users. And then, you know, we'd like to demonize the so-called drug pusher, but oftentimes that drug pusher is just the person who's you're, you're doing drugs with. It's your friend. It's your family member. And so making it laws harder for that, I think, has been proven over the years that it just doesn't work. We can't incarcerate the entire country. War on drugs has proven to be a failure. So my message is that of forgiveness and support. And they have a little saying, you know, Lily and I spent a lot of time in different treatment centers and different rooms and different AA meetings and NA meetings where, you know, you have to wait around for the miracle to happen. Well, at this point in Iowa, we have to keep our kids alive long enough for the miracle to happen. Because, you know, like I mentioned before, it's just, it's life and death. John, I'm sure so many listeners taking away so much from this conversation with you. I want to ask you before we say goodbye, why are you sharing this painful story so publicly now? Oh, we shared her story publicly at her funeral. Uh, Anything good that can come of it, make these parents aware because like, it's not like it was before. People said they were experimenting with drugs. Well, now you're experimenting with losing your life. Yeah. People know the whole drug pool out there is contaminated and there's so many other stories about young people and their stories are different, but ultimately it's fentanyl that's getting in their systems and killing them. Whether that be an accidental, you know, one time accidental press Xanax or continuous drug use and just maybe a little too much at one time. The fact of the matter is we have a few tools that can eliminate those deaths And we need to be using them with all the force we have because ultimately it's the one thing that we have that's proven to work. Narcan does work. It does reverse overdose deaths. Fentanyl testing strips should not be illegal. They're a useful tool. Why not know? Yeah. 
Well, John Schulte of Des Moines, um, thank you so much for this conversation, sharing your thoughts. John um, and his wife lost uh, their daughter, Lily, to an overdose in 2019. John, I'm sure you've done a lot of good by, by sharing your story, and thank you for coming forward with it. Thank you, man. Coming up after a short break, I'll talk with an Iowa medical student who's testified before lawmakers on her work preventing overdose deaths. Then Katerina Sestarek and I discuss bills advancing at the State House with state representatives tackling the opioid epidemic. This hour on River to River, we'll be right back. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer talking about the fact that Iowa has seen a dramatic spike in overdose deaths in recent years. In just a moment, together with IPR's Katerina Sestarek, we discuss proposals to address this crisis with Iowa lawmakers, including boosting sentences for fentanyl-related crimes, also making an overdose reversal medication more widely available to save lives. That's our mission this hour, tackling the overdose epidemic with public policies. Talia Sop is a fourth-year medical student at the University of Iowa College of Medicine, and she has testified before lawmakers at the Iowa Capitol. I spoke with her earlier today. Talia, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Ben. Tell us about your background working in this area of substance use disorders. What have you done? So prior to medical school, I just kind of fell into a job working at an addiction treatment center for teens. That really is where my my passion for people working with people who use drugs started. And um, throughout medical school, I've worked in some different addiction clinics, and I volunteer with the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, which focuses on helping people in our community who use drugs and trying to reduce the harms of drug use in our community. Mm -hmm. How have you, be a little more specific, how have you worked with people? I mean, in the clinical setting, I have worked with people who are, say, receiving medications to help with a substance use disorder like Suboxone or Methadone, and, you know, heard from a number of people who say, like, yeah, I'd probably be dead without this medication because, say, like, they'd overdosed several times, and they have said things like, who knows when the next time was going to be where someone wasn't there to reverse the overdose, so seeing the impact of those medications in people's lives. And then I also, I, the main thing I do with the Harm Reduction Coalition is I train people to administer naloxone and I help with our naloxone distribution program. And again, that's something where we hear from people all the time about overdoses that they've reversed or that they've had an overdose reversed on themselves. And it's just really work that makes me feel like I'm making a difference. 
Yeah, I'm sure you are making a difference, Talia. Give us an idea of how many people you've worked with in various capacities in this field. Dozens of people? So I'd say more like hundreds, maybe hundreds, maybe thousand or more. I know I've uh, helped distribute more than uh, 2,000 doses of naloxone, the uh, opioid overdose reversal agent. Wow. So with that background and that significant experience uh, that you have uh, as a medical student, what insights have you gained about what works to save lives, to help people uh, get uh, away from their addictions? Yeah, so there are, you know, as with any issue, there's not like one magic bullet, but there are a lot of things. But something I've noticed is that drug use is something that's very stigmatized and it's hard for people to seek help sometimes because of the stigma and some of the policies and laws we have in place that maybe are meant to deter drug use or protect people can end up inadvertently harming them. So I'll I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. There's one woman I've worked with who she actively uses heroin and she would like to stop using heroin and start Suboxone to treat her opioid use disorder. Um, However, she's in kind of a difficult situation. So she has a drug-related charge on her criminal record. So that's made it hard for her to find housing. It's also made it hard for her to find a job. And because of that, she has turned to to the illegal economy to, to meet her needs and she just tries to find whatever shelter she can for the night. She yeah. would like to yeah, go to a clinic, but starting one of these medications like Suboxone actually requires you to go through withdrawal, and it can mean maybe a day where you can't work, which she can't afford to do right now, because uh, that means a day without food and shelter. And she is like a lot of other people I've met where it's not that they don't want help or want treatment, but even when people do want it, it can just be really hard to access for for a variety of reasons. Okay. On the other side of things, you've talked about drug treatment and the overdose reversal medications being more readily available, uh, but, but what about the other things being discussed by lawmakers, like harsher sentences for fentanyl-related crimes? Do you see that ripple through the work that you've done as well? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things is that fentanyl, it often is mixed in with other drugs to increase their potency. So a lot of times people who use drugs or even low-level distributors don't know that fentanyl is in the drug that they have. So, And also there are ways to test for it, but fentanyl test strips are currently illegal in Iowa. They're considered drug paraphernalia. So it seems a little unfair to charge someone for, say, possession a substance that they don't know they even have. There's also been a lot of research looking at the effects of different drug policies, and something that's been consistently found is that increasing penalties does not decrease overdose deaths or drug use or um, drug dealing. I think we have this intuition that like, if we make the penalties harsher, then that's going to be a bigger deterrent effect, but the research just uh, doesn't bear that out. Sometimes what we see instead is that by increasing penalties, we just kind of push the issue further underground and make it more difficult for people to to get help uh, when they need it. 
Yeah. What about, uh, Talia, what about Good Samaritan laws? Uh, people calling, but perhaps uh, are users themselves afraid to call 911 when a, a friend, a fellow user, uh, is in distress because they fear they'll be charged? Yeah. So Good Samaritan laws have been shown, from what I've read, again, I'm not a drug policy expert, just but just from what I've read, uh, Good Samaritan laws are effective at reducing overdose deaths. Um, however, a lot of times these Good Samaritan laws have limits to them. So for instance, for the one in Iowa, an individual can only use the Good Samaritan law once. So say they already got some legal immunity from calling in an overdose before, they can't then, like if they call in an overdose again, they don't um, get immunity that time. So restrictions like that really undermine the Good Samaritan law. And there have been cases where someone was afraid to call a second time, and people have died as a result. You have testified before Iowa lawmakers to wrap our conversation up, Talia. Tell us, in a nutshell, if you could, what are your messages for Iowa lawmakers now? I guess that we're all on the same page of wanting to reduce overdose deaths and to reduce harms in our community from drug use. But my fear is that some of what we're proposing may inadvertently do more harm than it does good. And, you know, I think that at the end of the day, what's been shown to be effective is getting people access to treatment, helping reduce barriers to, to um, say, participation in the legal economy, like the person I was talking to you about before. Mm -hmm. And I'm super excited about this bill going forward to expand uh, access to naloxone since it is such a life-saving medication. But yeah, I am, I'm concerned about some of the things increasing uh, with increasing penalties. Talia Sop is a fourth-year University of Iowa medical student. Uh, as you just heard, she's worked with hundreds uh, helping those with substance use disorders, and we've tapped into that expertise. Talia Sop, thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. And I'd like to add just one thing. If people are interested in getting naloxone, either yeah, to keep around for emergencies or for, for a friend or loved one, you can go to uh, naloxoneiowa.org. can call from anywhere in the state and speak with a pharmacist, and they can uh, mail naloxone to your home. So that's a really great resource. Very important. Talia, thank you for mentioning that as well. Take care. Thank you conversation recorded with Talia earlier today. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. If you've just joined us talking about the dramatic spike in overdose deaths that uh, Iowa, this is also mirrored across the country, not just Iowa specific, but of course we're focusing on Iowa. In just the year 2021, 470 overdose deaths in our state. That's a 75% increase from 2019, according to the Iowa Attorney General. Do you have a personal connection to a person with a substance use disorder? Have you lost a friend, a loved one, to an overdose? What new policies do you believe should be implemented? You can join our conversation live for the rest of the hour, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us. Anonymously works as well. Our email, river to river 
at iowapublicradio.org. My co-host this hour, Katerina Sestarek, IPR state government reporter. Katerina, you are there at the Iowa State Law Library at the State House there. Before we introduce our two lawmakers to discuss proposals currently advancing in the legislature, get us up to speed on, on what proposals uh, are advancing. Right. So the governor has a bill that's one of her priorities um, that would enhance penalties for dealing drugs that contain fentanyl. Um, There could be a penalty of up to 50 years in prison for selling large amounts of fentanyl-laced drugs. And then if a person causes the death of someone else by selling them drugs, their prison sentence could be tripled under the bill. Um, Part of this is the governor um, and state law enforcement officials have been talking about this drastic increase in counterfeit pain pills that look just like prescription drugs, but can contain a deadly amount of fentanyl and cases where people have taken one one of these pills and died. Um, and the governor's bill would also expand how naloxone can be distributed, which is a drug that can stop an opio- opioid overdose. So it would allow school districts, health providers, and law enforcement agencies to have that on hand and then give it out to other people who could be in a position to help someone who might be experiencing an overdose. And then there's also a bill from the attorney general um, that says if that creates a, a higher level of crime for someone who un- unintentionally causes the death of another person by dealing drugs to them. Um, and so... Those are just some of the proposals that are out there right now. Let's listen to a little bit of what Governor Reynolds had to say last Thursday discussing her proposal and the need for these measures. We have fentanyl pouring across this open border, and it's flowing into our communities, and it's killing our young people, and it is unconscionable. Not only are we going to put stricter laws in place to prevent, to hopefully start to prevent that from killing our children, uh, but also we're doing a PSA just to help educate families about what to look for and how to have conversations with their kids. Here's some more tape to share with us, uh, our listeners. Lisa Davis-Cook spoke before a subcommittee concerning the Attorney General's proposal. You just mentioned that, Katerina, on behalf of the Iowa Association for Justice, which opposes opposes the, the governor's measure. We are registered as opposed to the bill. As a general rule, when it comes to increased penalties, increased crimes, we oppose those types of measures because we don't believe they actually act as a deterrent to anything. And we think there's other ways to get at this fentanyl crisis other than just increasing penalties, especially when you're looking at unintentional deaths. I share Amy's concern about the sharing aspect. I want to make sure this new bill does not do anything to impact the bill that you all passed a couple years ago that allowed someone to report an overdose and not be criminally prosecuted. So I want to make sure that if that person is sharing that drug, that that's not going to inhibit them from reporting the overdose and maybe saving a life. Testimony before a subcommittee, uh, Ben Kiefer with Katerina Sestarek. Uh, let's welcome our lawmakers here. Uh, Representative Brian Losey is with us, a Republican from Bondurant in our uh, law library. Uh, Representative Losey, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. He's also joined by uh, Representative Ross Wilburn, a Democrat from Ames. Representative Wilburn, welcome to you. Thank you, Ben. Good afternoon. Good to be here. Good afternoon. Before I turn this over to Katerina, I just wanted to mention, Katerina, once again, our conversation. You can join it, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, especially if you have a personal story connected with our issue today, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Katerina. 
So Representative Losey, since you're in the majority here, um, you know, how do Republican lawmakers expect that enhancing penalties for these fentanyl related crimes will, you know, lead to fewer overdoses or help or help stop the crisis that we're seeing in Iowa? Well, obviously, there is I, I believe there is a deterrent effect. I, mean, I think that's the, the overarching idea here is that someone looks at the penalties, knows what they're going to get. They're less likely to, to try to bring fentanyl in um, and distribute them. Um, I, I tend to agree with IAJ that it, it has minimal effect, um, but I think there is some effect. But the other part of that is uh, not only increasing your penalties, hopefully will have some deterrent effect. It also is about justice for the victim. Um, and this is uh, – the, the fentanyl is a particularly, to me, a kind of a heinous thing because you have people mixing this in for, for to enhance a drug that's already causes a high – to make it more more potent, more addictive, without any regard for for the personal safety of anyone, and doing it in such a way that you know these aren't these aren't professional chemists putting these together. These are some people that just don't care. So they don't really care how close they get the mix to being lethal versus non-lethal. And to me, that's that's about justice and, and saying to people this this isn't going to be acceptable, um, and you are going to to pay a higher harsher penalty. Um, if you do this type of activity. Uh, Representative Wilburn, where do you stand on these harsher penalties for fentanyl-related crimes? Well, first, it, it's important to acknowledge um, John, in particular, who shared his story about uh, the tragic death of his daughter. And uh, all of our hearts and prayers go out, but it's not enough for hearts and prayers. There's something that we can do. And uh, my colleagues across the aisle and the governor, I think there's a genuine interest in doing something and making sure that folks you know that that will lace uh, drugs with this. That, that they they pay a penalty. That's that's the penalty part of it. But deterrence is a different question, and there are a lot of studies uh, through the Department of Justice that indicate that deterrence uh, is not a um, is not a uh, a strong effect. In fact, the certainty of of getting caught. Uh, with the presence of law enforcement, other things is a much greater a deterrent than uh, you know upping a penalty that uh, you know. In most cases, um, you know, the person manufacturing doesn't know. And clearly, you know, someone who happens to be sharing uh, a drug that happens to be, whether it's, um, you know, um, you know, Xanax that's laced or, or, or uh, Adderall that happens to be laced with it. And so I, I think we need to get more of a comprehensive strategy. And I'd like to see those, those uh, preventative approaches, uh, whether that's fentanyl test strips or uh, I think John, uh, both, both folks had in, indicated a, uh, uh, Narcan, not uh, not uh, Noxalone, as as a potential to uh, to uh, arm uh, Iowans with the tool who happen to uh, be using to test to see if it's if it's a uh, fentanyl's present. Mm -hmm. And as you kind of mentioned, um, you know, so Representative Losi, he's just talking about how the potential of getting caught is maybe more of a deterrent. So these are this would be heightening penalties for people who are already getting caught by law enforcement. Um, does there need to be more funding or more efforts to investigate, you know, and, the networks that are um, spreading the fentanyl lace drugs throughout Iowa to actually try to catch more people and make it more likely they'll be caught? Or is just raising the penalties enough of a deterrent? We're going to go to break and have our lawmakers respond to that question by Katerina Sestarek in just a moment. Uh, we're discussing the opioid epidemic, the rise in overdose deaths. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer on this Legislative Monday when we address issues being debated uh, during the legislative session. Katerina Sestarek, um, our state government reporter here at IPR, my co-host for this hour, addressing the dramatic spike in overdose deaths, hundreds of Iowans dying per year, uh, really alarming increases uh, in the past few years. If you have lost a loved one or a family member, what policies do you believe should be implemented? Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. With us, two lawmakers live for the remainder of the hour, uh, Representative Brian Losey, a Republican, and Representative Ross Wilburn, a Democrat. And Katerina, before the break, we didn't have time to, to get to a, a very good question that you had for our lawmakers, if you could restate that. Right. So um, enhancing penalties for fentanyl-related crimes, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean more people who are dealing fentanyl-laced drugs are going to get caught. Does the legislature need to address that with more funding for investigating these sorts of people and networks, Representative Losey? I haven't heard a lot of uh, call for that from the law enforcement community, either the state or state or local, that they're having difficulties um, doing their investigations and in, in, in searching into those uh, those issues. Um, happy to have that conversation, and, and we'll reach out to the law enforcement um, you know, part of the problem, though, is this isn't just a state and local issue. I mean, this stuff is coming up from Mexico, from all over. You know, there's a lot of states between the Mexican border and and, and Iowa. So, at some point, there's there, this also is a federal issue on how you you stop the trafficking of this and as it's flowing across the country. So that's a, a good question for our our, um, our congressional delegation uh, and things that that could be done to enhance uh, the federal ability to to stop the flow as well as, um, you know, even within in the state. If there are things that we can do to, to give more power, um, that's probably the wrong word, but to give more ability for, the, uh, for state and local law enforcement to do their investigations and, and do those things that they need to do uh, to stop the trafficking here, um, I'm happy to have that conversation. But as of, as of this, this year so far, I haven't, I haven't heard any call for that from, from them. Okay, let's go to one of our callers. Chris is joining us in Waterloo, listening, and has a question. Hi, Chris. What is your take on our discussion? Well, one of the thoughts I've got is one of the solutions to the issue is the fact that substance use treatment works, um, but agencies are expected to keep providing services on rates that are twelve years, ten to twelve years old. Mm. Um, what consideration is being made to look at those rates to increase them so that treatment can be available when the clients need it, not when they can see if they can wait on the waiting list. Representative Losey, would you like to respond to Chris in Waterloo, please? Yeah, uh, happy to um, discuss that. Uh, that's one of the issues that, that, I've, that I've been passionate about over in my four years here, um, given my family's history. Um, cause we see the problem. Um, we've seen the problem firsthand. 
I will say that uh, DHS is just this week coming out with a review of all rates, which I believe will include substance abuse uh, re- disorder reimbursement rates. Uh, so I'm hoping that that uh, they will be, uh, from a Medicaid standpoint, obviously, but I hope that they will be increased and they will also be then uniform across the, the now soon-to-be three MCOs uh, through that review. Um, I do have a bill in in, uh, in the House that uh, has had a subcommittee waiting on, well, the, frankly, this review uh, that would require a, a rate, um, rate review and a, a rate uh, schedule uh, for substance abuse disorder treatment. So I'm hoping that there's movement in that level, Chris, uh, in this particular year. Um, and they said, I'm just waiting uh, for that information from DHS, which I think is going to be available this week to us. Representative Wilburn, did you have a... Representative Wilburn. Yeah, sorry, we were going the same way. Uh, Representative Wilburn. Absolutely. Well, first, I know that um, the rates that Representative Losey is talking about, I mean, it's it's critical that the the rates go up so that uh, our treatment centers can can stay in business. And, uh, you know, the person, uh, John, that shared his story earlier, uh, he said when his daughter, um, you know, was uh, addicted, that uh, basically um, they didn't have any um, any Narcan available. And so, uh, you know, being able to have supply and, and purchases is, is an important um, piece to that. Uh, but I, I think it's also important that we go back to in terms of the uh, enforcement. Uh, I mean, I, I've been hearing from medical and treatment providers about the uh, importance of emphasizing the prevention and treatment as opposed to uh, the deterrence and and I know Representative Losey, he, he he likes to look at things comprehensively. I, I I trust him on that. The question is whether we agree on some of the things about deterrence. But uh, you know, there's there's room for bipartisan support here. And you know, I mean, the governor points that uh, yes, there are uh, they are coming through Mexico, but uh, it's it's more complex than that because the raw materials are coming from China, and so that's a bigger picture. We need to talk to our congressional representatives about what we can do right here, right now in Iowa. Uh, I'm not even challenging them on, you know, increasing from C to B to A felonies. I'm saying let's, I'm going to let you have deterrence, even though I, I don't think it works, but let's get the, let's get the fentanyl test strips available. It's a low cost method for preventing a drug uh, overdose. Uh, and I believe I heard earlier th- uh, last week that the federal government is looking at uh, making um, naloxone over the counter. Um, and so, I mean, right now you can go to pharmacist, um, it's, I think it's around the ballpark of a hundred dollars or more. And if it's released over the counter, they'll bring it down to 10 to $20. And, you know, uh, I think it's estimated from department of justice that 40% of the uh, folks who overdose, um, there's someone present. And if they have access to, um, you know, Narcan or even before someone takes it, if they can have a fentanyl test strip, it stops these deaths, critical, uh, tragic deaths of Iowans. Representative Wilburn, do you think um, the governor's bill goes far enough in expanding access to naloxone? I know there's also um, some other groups that were hoping that it would allow just like community organizations that serve people who use drugs, you know, to to distribute it. Um, Do you think it should go further? As far as I recall from this bill, and I know Representative Velosi will correct me, uh, it's really looking at uh, that deterrent increasing the penalties. It does provide some immunity for pharmacies and, and that type of thing, but it doesn't really address, uh, well, it doesn't address, um, you know, fentanyl test strips and, um, and um, I don't believe about naloxone unless it's, you know, one of the pharmacists, that type of thing. Again, the immunity piece. 
Representative Losey, um, do you have any thoughts on the naloxone portion of the bill? Well, I think it does uh, expand who can provide uh, the naloxone. I think it's a good step. Um, we did mention that in our subcommittee on this on the governor's bill right. uh, as far as expanding that list even further. The governor's uh, staff was indicated they were willing to have that conversation, and, and I look forward to having that conversation with Representative Thompson and Representative Wilburn to where we can uh, reasonably expand it. And, and this, I'd love to throw just the the gates open, but you know we have to also be careful not to get the white gates too wide open, but not knowing that what consequences they would have. We have to have a, a serious discussion about that. But um, I think we're all willing to have that conversation about how we do expand it if it's if it makes sense to do so, and it probably does. There's been a lot of talk of you know potentially wanting to legalize fentanyl test strips. Um, Representative Losey, do you think Republicans would support that in the House? You know, right now what I'm hearing is that uh, uh, some the, the law enforcement aspect, the law enforcement out there are, are, are have some opposition to that, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly where their opposition is. Um, as, a, as the father of uh, someone who's in recovery, you know, I've had that conversation with, with, uh, with them and um, – you know whether or not fentanyl test strips would have made a addiction an issue or a, a difference to a to an addict, and he doesn't really think they would. Um, but I think there is certainly a population here in in Iowa that, uh, and I think everywhere, it's not just Iowa, but really do use some of this stuff recreationally, and it seems to make sense. I haven't quite figured out why fentanyl test strips are deemed drug paraphernalia. It's not like it delivers fentanyl. Um, I don't quite understand the opposition. I'm not sure it makes a big difference, but I'm also not sure at this point it hurts anything. So still looking forward to having those conversations as to what the opposition is and why it's even drug paraphernalia in the first place. We heard from Talia earlier, and I thought she brought up an interesting point of, you know, someone who's selling a drug might not even know it's laced with fentanyl. Um, And so without being able to even use fentanyl test strips from that perspective, you know, you would be charging someone for selling a drug maybe they didn't know they were selling or there would be enhanced penalties for that. You know, what's your response to that concern? Um, well, I, I have to analyze the, the comment a little bit more, but, you know, giving, and maybe that's where the opposition comes from. If it's, you know, you're, you're give, giving these to dealers to determine whether or not the drug is safe and is that really the best, best policy. So that may be where some of this opposition is coming from. Um, you're making it easier for them to do rather than the user side of things. And I guess that's where I've been looking at this is, um, you know, why or why not it may make a difference. So um, that's a, I guess I'm going to have to dig a little further into that, um, that uh, those, those discussions and just figure out exactly where the opposition is and why. Um, at one of the um, subcommittee hearings that you were both at, um, we heard from the Mahaska County attorney who has been supporting the attorney general's bill, saying that um, in his county there was a person who injected a woman with drugs and she died and he dumped her body in a river. And um, this county attorney couldn't, the the highest charge he could give was not high enough, he thought. And so the federal government took over the prosecution of the case. Um, and that's why he's saying Iowa county attorneys should have the ability to prosecute these cases, these higher level drug death cases. Um, Representative Wilburn, do you think that Iowa county attorneys should have more ability to do that? Well, first, I believe part of his response was deterrence. It wasn't about the penalty. And I just basically, in my comment said, let's be honest, it, we're talking about penalizing. 
and that that's you know that's what we do and and uh, someone whose uh, loved one has died from uh, you know a fentanyl laced medication um, you know that's uh, that's part of their um, that's part of their I don't want to say retribution but that's the understanding but you know we go back to uh, John earlier he didn't say we need more class A and B felonies he for again someone who is a user and distributes to someone else he said openness hope and forgiveness and so again i'm not trying to take away from the terence you know from the county attorney as he as he sees it that component of it but we can fill up our jails we can fill up our you know correctional centers uh, and keep filling up an already overburdened system or we can try and address things from the other end, the user end, uh, and even users who are supplying others. And that's why I think it's critical uh, that the fentanyl test strips is a component of this. And, uh, you know, hopefully the um, federal government will make, um, you know, naloxone over the counter. One of our um, uh, pharmacists I know told me that, uh, you know, someone's, one of his clients, um, a child was addicted and had overdosed and um, the the, narc, the narcon that was given uh, saved that child's life. Um, so I, I think we just need to we we need to we can't piecemeal this. It's too important. It's too critical. You know, if if that county attorney's thinking, you know, desperate times require desperate measures. Let's bump it up to a class A felony. I'm just saying, okay, desperate times require desperate measures. Let's give Iowans the tools to you know for those who are using to make it safer or someone whose who's loved one is addicted, uh, to put them in a position to intervene safely. Fin- finishing up our conversation this hour, a few more minutes left with Representatives Ross Wilburn, a Democrat, Representative Brian Losey, a, a Republican, as proposals being debated at the State House, and we've been exploring them in depth uh, this hour. Uh, and uh, we want to... to uh, acknowledge some input from our listeners. Uh, Jason, uh, one of our listeners, writes in an email, how about we close borders and quit being soft on crime? Giving these drug users Narcan just enables the drug users to keep using. Maybe we should make drugs illegal, then people won't use them. The view from uh, uh, Jason uh, there, uh, Suzanne via email, why not focus on drug on treatment access. The care is poor everywhere, writes Suzanne. Let's go to our caller, Ryan. Not much time, Ryan, but you're calling from North Liberty, I see. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ben. Um, I just wanted to uh, pose the question as to, is there evidence that supports the assertion that these drugs are pouring in over the southern border? Um, And if not, what's the point of tying this uh, epidemic to uh, border security? Thank you. All right, Ryan, thank you very much. And according to the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, um, most fentanyl is being smuggled into the U.S. along the southern border, often in vehicles. These are the well-known junctures like El Paso, uh, Juarez, for instance, directly south of us. Uh, This is as, uh, and these are vehicles driven by American citizens, according to the DEA. Uh, Cartels and other criminal groups in Mexico have turned to the production of this synthetic opioid Um, in a clandestine industry that has become a primary source of fentanyl in in the U.S. But uh, 
we have a bit of time. I don't know if our lawmakers would like to respond uh, to that. I guess, you know, we heard the governor, the Representative Losey, emphasizing the southern border. Why so much emphasis on the southern border as if it's coming through the, the, the fields when this is American citizens driving this back over the border through well-known and well-controlled points on the border? Well, you know, first, it, I... I it's a good point. I mean, it's if these are bringing by American citizens, will closing the border uh, stop that? And I think the answer is not as much as what we'd hope. Um, you know, I think closing the border would be a good good thing to do. I think it would probably have some effect. We certainly need to, in the DEA and in their checkpoints, certainly need to make sure that they're uh, and the border agents be fully funded in order to, to get uh, at the ability to ensure that the vehicles that they're uh, – uh, that are coming across are properly inspected and fully inspected to make sure that uh, they're stopping those vehicles. Um, that's a more a federal issue than, than I have uh, the capacity to be able to deal with, but um, it's certainly a, certainly a focal point, um, either closing the border, uh, both closing the border, as well as making sure that the agents have the, the uh, uh, capacity and manpower and, and et cetera to, to be able to uh, do the inspections that they need to do to try to to find and locate uh, this stuff coming across the border. 20 to 30 seconds left for you, Representative Wilburn, to close our show. Sorry you don't have much time. What I would add is why just focus on Mexico, whether uh, it's an American bringing it across or it's being smuggled in. You've got to look at the raw materials coming from China. And, you know, using Narcan is not being soft on crime. It it decreases the high that somebody gets and leads to them getting treatment and leads to them not staying addicted. Okay. We can do this if we can do it together comprehensively. Representatives Ross Wilburn and uh, Brian Losey, thank you very much for being part of our program today. Thank you. Thank you. River to River today produced by Caitlin Troutman. Technical support from John Pample. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks so much.